Well, it's great uh, joy and privilege to be with you uh, this evening again. Enjoyed my time last time. I can't quite remember when that was, but I keep on telling people the psalm singing here is great, and <laughs> you must go and hear it. So I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed that aspect as well as the fellowship and meeting uh, you. Well, let's turn again to uh, Psalm 37. Let's pray. Father, we come now uh, to your word, and uh, Father, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit, who inspired Ezekiel to write these words, recording his vision of what he saw so long ago by the Kabard Canal in Babylon, Lord, would help us today in London, give us understanding, open our eyes to see. May you speak to us, and we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, at university, I had a friend whose home church met in the chapel of a crematorium and a cemetery in Portland, Oregon. Uh, the reason it did was that my friend's father was a builder who had been contracted to build the chapel and the crematorium. Unfortunately, the company that owned the cemetery, the crematorium, went bust. And my friend's father came to own uh, not only the chapel and the crematorium, but the cemetery as, uh, as well. Now, I won't tell you what my friend did as a summer job, as it might turn your stomach, uh, but if you want to find out afterwards, uh, ask me. But I will tell you that at the same time as my friend's father was involved in doing all this, that he was also leading or part of the leadership of a church, of a new church that was being planted. The church needed a place to meet. So my friend's father offered the chapel of the crematorium and the cemetery because it wasn't being used on Sundays. Now, at first, you might think uh, such a location is at best a bit unusual. But when you think about it, the chapel of a crematorium and cemetery is a very, very good location for a church. For what could be a better setting for a church to proclaim the reality of the resurrection from the dead? Uh, surrounded by the graves of the dead, here was a church made up of people who had been spiritually dead, but, but were now spiritually alive, worshiping the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the hope of his return to raise up all who believe in him on the last day, so they live forever with him in the new creation. And whether my friend's uh, church or any church, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is about. And wherever we meet, that is the message that we proclaim. We believe that through the prayerful preaching of the gospel, spiritually dead people are made spiritually alive, who when Jesus returns, will be raised physically to live forever in the new creation. And that's what we discover in the passage that we're looking at uh, this evening from the book of Ezekiel. In this section of his prophecy, Ezekiel has been unfolding the new covenant God will make with his people. Uh, in a glorious new creation, God will have a redeemed people who have had their sins cleansed, who have been given new hearts, and who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that they obey him. You can read of that in, earlier in chapter uh, 36, verses 24 to 36. And there will not only be a few such people in the new creation, but a vast number like the flocks of sheep brought to Jerusalem for the great religious festivals. Read that right at the end of chapter 36. There's this picture of all these flocks, these sheep being brought in up to Jerusalem for the Passover or whatever it might be. That will be the, the, the sheer numbers, the millions and billions of people who will be brought into the eternal kingdom. But considering the unbelief and rebellion of the Jewish exiles, how would that happen? 
Well, the answer to that question is found in this passage. And once again, the hand of the Lord is on Ezekiel. But this time, rather than giving him a vision of the temple in Jerusalem being corrupted by idolatry, back in chapter 8, verse 3, the Spirit of the Lord takes Ezekiel to the middle of a valley. And what a horrific sight Ezekiel sees. Verses 1 and 2. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the, of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around the, uh, among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And what Ezekiel sees is almost something out of a horror film. What people discover after a, a massacre. I was reading an account of the First World War from the perspective of one of the Russian uh, soldiers going into a battlefield and just seeing the sheer, and this is after some time, just the, the debris and the bones and the bodies, this horrific Here's a valley full of bones. And led back and forth among them, Ezekiel realizes just how very, very dry these bones are. Bleached dry in that very hot Middle Eastern sun. And this is the vision of the spiritual condition of Israel. Uh, they are spiritually dead. It's the dry bones of these dead people. And when asked if these spiritually dead people could live again, Ezekiel wisely throws the, the question back uh, to the one asking him in verse uh, 3. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Now, of course, God could raise dead people to life, but the question is, would he? And if so, how would he? Now, faced as we are with the reality of so many spiritually dead around us today, in our valley of dry bones here in London and in the UK, wherever we find ourselves, we find ourselves really in the same position as Ezekiel in the middle of that valley of dry bones. For make no mistake, the unbelievers among whom we live in this world, among whom you'll be working with uh, tomorrow and through this week and doing things with, are spiritually dead and are unable in themselves to respond to the call of the gospel. Unbelievers are not merely spiritually ignorant and in need of some enlightenment. They're not merely spiritually impaired and in need of some assistance. Sadly, that's how some Christians think of the spiritual condition of unbelievers. And their approach to evangelism really reflects this. It's just really to sort of help people over the line a little bit to assist them to get over the line, to make things a bit easier for them to uh, understand. No, what we must realize is just how spiritually dead unbelievers are. How spiritually dead unbelievers are. And saying that, we're not saying that in smug judgment of them because we're just reminding ourselves of just how spiritually we, dead we were before becoming Christians, even brought up in Christian families, with godly parents and grandparents, great-grandparents and so on. We were spiritually dead until we came to faith in Christ. That's the point the Apostle Paul makes in his letter uh, to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 2 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in those who are the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But the amazing reality of the gospel is that God makes spiritually dead people live. Paul goes on to speak of that in verses uh, 4 and 5. But God, it's one of those great buts of the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God. It can't be otherwise for spiritually dead people since we can't do anything to save ourselves. But God can. And God does save spiritually dead people by uniting them to his son, the Lord Jesus. And what we couldn't do, God does. Paul makes the same point in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When we were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. And that's why anyone who is a Christian has become a Christian. And that's what we, it must happen to anyone who is a, a, an unbeliever. And what was true of the Jewish people in exile is just as true for everyone today. However physically alive we are, unbelievers are spiritually dead. And if they don't come to life, they will be lost forever. Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel was asked. Can spiritually dead people live? And if so, how can they? Well, that's the question we want to answer from our passage tonight. And so let's uh, turn to the passage and I'd like you to note three things from it. The first is this. Spiritually dead people can only live if there's preaching for God. Spiritually dead people can only live if there is preaching for God. Verses 4 to 8. Now, Ezekiel is commanded by God to prophesy to the dead bones. Verse, uh, verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. To prophesy means to speak to people for God. And God sends prophets to speak to, for him to people. Put another way, God sends preachers to people. Ezekiel then is, as a preacher, is to speak for God to the dry bones in the valley. The dry bones are to hear the word of the Lord. Now that seems an absurd thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, humanly, the situation is hopeless. It's this valley of dry bones. It's the most ridiculous thing to say to someone, well, preach to them. All those dead bodies out there, preach to them. In their sinful rebellion against God, the Jewish people are in a hopeless spiritual condition. Nevertheless, Ezekiel is to do what is humanly absurd. And he could with the promise that God would give life to these dead bones. Verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Through the preaching of Ezekiel, the dry bones would become bodies with skin on them, and muscle on them, sinews on them, and he would give them life. And in this way, Ezekiel would know that God to be the Lord, who through his word gives life to the dead. And so Ezekiel does exactly what God commands him to do and prophesies and preaches to these dry, dry bones. And miraculously, the bones come together as, as skeletons and the skeletons become bodies. And yet, 
there's still not yet life in them. Verses 7 and uh, 8. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. You can hear it. Oh, imagine it. They sort of suddenly hear this big valley, the rattling of the bones, coming together bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there's no breath in them. And then he's, 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 he's happening them to hear. Try to imagine the scene as thousands, if not millions of bones come together as bodies. Now, what's all this uh, about? Well, it, it's about how the preaching of the word is essential if spiritually dead people are to come and have spiritual life. Uh, that's just as true today as it was in Ezekiel's day, and it has ever been and ever will be. Yes, it is humanly absurd to preach the word to spiritually dead people. But we do that because God commands us to, just as he commanded Ezekiel to do that. And as with Ezekiel, we have God's promise that by his word, spiritually dead people will come to life. That's what we must remember about preaching. And by preaching, I don't only mean what ministers like me or Andy would do here Sunday by Sunday and other, uh, other pastors do when you preach a sermon from a lectern or a pulpit like this, but also what all believers do when they tell people the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That could be through a conversation you have with a friend, a neighbor, a, a, a relative, through a Bible study, through a leaflet, or through social media. Whatever means by which the, the gospel is verbally communicated, and there's a communication of the gospel, preaching is happening. However the word is preached, the word is preached God, however the word is preached, God can make spiritually dead people alive through it. And he does that by giving people new birth through the word. Listen to how the Apostle Peter puts this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of the, like the flower of, of, of grass, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the, the, the good, the, and this word is the good news that has been preached to you. It was this good news that was preached that brought life, brought new life uh, to people. Uh, this is how, uh, pe how people who were, in Paul's words, dead in transgressions and sins are made alive with Christ. By the word preached in some form, some way, Spiritually dead people are resurrected. A miracle takes place. It might look at like that on the surface, but a, a spiritual miracle is taking place when that person is made alive in their soul. That's what Jesus means uh, he, he, when he speaks in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and has, it is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And he'll go later go on to speak about how the day will come when people hear the voice of, the Lord, of his voice on the last day of judgment and be raised up in resurrection bodies. But he's talking about right now. They will hear the voice 
of the Son of God and come to life. And he, he demonstrated this in the resurrection of Lazarus, who was dead in his tomb. And Jesus says to him, Lazarus, come out. And it's through that command that Lazarus, physically dead, comes to life and comes out. And that illustrates the, what happens spiritually when anyone hears the voice of the Son of God. Come out. Come out of your sin. Come out of your rebellion against me. Come out of your death. Come to life. They hear the voice of the Lord Jesus in the gospel and come to life in him. By his word, the Lord Jesus gives spiritual life to, the, to spiritually dead people. And having given new birth and spiritual life, people then who were once dead in his sins believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. By his word, God continues to give that life to those who are now, now spiritually alive. That is Christians who continue to trust in him for salvation. Now, do you see then how important preaching is in the process of people becoming Christians? Spiritually dead people can only live if there is preaching for God by people like you and me. You know, God could speak himself from heaven. He could just, you know, could hear a voice in heaven. Everybody could hear that. And there were occasions when that happened in the Bible, but that's what he could normally do. Or he could send angels to speak for him. Occasionally that has happened, but he doesn't do that normally. Rather, God has chosen people like us with all our weakness and frailty to be his spokesmen and his women. To jars of clay like us, God has entrusted the gospel so that it is preached in the valleys of dry bones of our culture. Let's then be faithful to the ministry the Lord has entrusted to us as his people, to you together as a church here at London City Presbyterian Church, or, or individually uh, as Christians, or in your families. For in the new covenant, every believer is a prophet, just as every believer is a priest and a king. Yes, we're priests who can draw near to God and exercise our gifts, and we're, we're kings who can to rule under God in our spheres of life, but we're also prophets in Christ to speak his word. Of course, we're not vehicles of new revelation from God in the way that Ezekiel and other prophets were, or the apostles were. But in a lesser way, like Ezekiel, we are those who are, to, who are sent by God to preach the word, to bring the word to, to the dry bones all around us. Let's give ourselves to doing that and our personal witness to non-Christians. Let's support those who are gifted and sent to preach the gospel in this country, in other countries, to other cultures. Yes, it's humanly absurd. But we believe in a God who breathes new life into spiritually dead people by his spirit, working through his word. And if we believe that, then nothing is too difficult. Nothing is too daunting. But more is needed than preaching. More is needed than preaching. And that brings us to our second point. That spiritually dead people can only live if there's prayer to God. Spiritually dead people can only live if there's prayer to God, verses 9 to 10. So far, Ezekiel has prophesied or preached the word to the dry bones with the result that the bones have become bodies, but there's no life in them. And now God commands Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath, verse, uh, verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Ezekiel is to preach to the breath or to the spirit of God, who is present in every corner of the world. 
And it's used in this context, the word breath refers to the Holy Spirit. That's who, that's who Ezekiel's referring to. And this prophesying to the breath is not preaching in the sense we've just been thinking about, but rather praying to the Spirit. Praying to the Spirit. It's just, it, it is in the name of God, asking the Spirit to come and to give life to the dead bodies in the valley. And that's what Ezekiel does, verse 10. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Uh, the dead bodies that not long before had been dry bones now possess life and stand as a vast army. What has happened? Well, you we mustn't think that in bringing his, his people to life, God works in two stages. You know, first they sort of come together somehow and then the breath comes into them separately. What is being pictured here, and remember, this is a, a vision that visually and figuratively pictures a reality, is God's purpose in resurrecting spiritually dead people. That's what's being pictured here. In the background is what happened to, in, the, in creation, uh, in, in Adam, when Adam was created, as recorded in the book of Genesis, when God formed his body, then breathed life into it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And so now, as God recreates his people Israel, by resurrecting them, he breathes life into their bodies that he's already remade. And by his spirit, through his word, God is recreating his people as a new humanity that will serve him as a vast army. And that's what God is doing through his spirit and by spirit-empowered preaching of the word today. But for many spiritually dead people to be made spiritually alive through the preaching of the word, we must pray. Yes, we must preach. Absolutely necessary. We must verbally communicate the gospel faithfully. But we also must pray. We must cry out to God in prayer for the spirit to come and to give life to those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. We're praying for a miracle to happen. Every time we want to see someone convert, we're praying for a miracle to happen. Not just a natural process of someone coming to understand the gospel and coming to say, no, a, a miracle. It turns a person who's against the gospel and uh, just doesn't understand it. Suddenly the, the light to switch on. They're praying for a miracle uh, to happen. Of course, God doesn't need our prayers and can uh, to, uh, to, to work through his word in saving people. He's not dependent on us. And happily, he works in spite of our not praying as we should. God is not dependent on us. Nevertheless, God wants us to pray. He wants to use our prayers. His ordained prayer is one of the ways in which his kingdom advances in the world. He wants us to express our faith in him by praying for his spirit. That's really what prayer is about, simply expressing our faith consciously to God that he would do as he's promised in his word. He wants us to do, to do that in every area of life, which is why Jesus says that, what, that whatever our, our need, the Father gives the Spirit to those who ask him for it. Luke eleven thirteen. 13. The Spirit is really the answer to every prayer. But the Spirit is particularly the answer to our need uh, for him to make our preaching of the word effective. We preach, but we want that word to be effective. And faced with a valley of dry bones in the unbelieving people all around us, we need to pray that the Spirit will make these bones live through what we have communicated. And in doing that, we take hold of God's word and we pray that God would do as he has promised and save a vast number of people. 
we know how helpless we are faced with the task of making Christ known in our generation. And how, speaking of myself, you know, just how clueless sometimes, it just feels utterly, just what I don't, I mean, some people seem to have almost, uh, can talk to anyone. I have a friend, she could talk to anyone. She ended up talking to Richard Dawkins on a train once. And um, he ended up going to All Souls just this past Christmas, believe it or not, for, um, to, a, to a carol service. But I, I would know, if I was sitting with them, I'd be tongue-tied. You know, we cannot, you know, I think most of us feel like that. We just feel utterly awkward, unable to, to communicate uh, the gospel. But through prayer, we can access the power of the Spirit to work through our feeble, halting, uh, tongue-tied words. And that's why the Apostle Paul asked for prayer in the early churches. Listen to him again in, in, in Ephesians, right at the end of that letter we've heard to all, already, Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verse uh, eight, uh, 18. Uh, you know, here's Paul. He's just talk, been talking about spiritual warfare and putting on the full armor of God and, and, and so on. And then he says, uh, he says this, and having mentioned how we are to, you know, have the sword of the Spirit, that, which is the Word of God, he says, praying at all times uh, in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, I keep alert with a, a perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also pray and also for me, that words may be given to me to, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am in chains. Paul says, I need your help so I can verbally communicate uh, the, the gospel. Now, my friends, as the great apostle Paul needed prayer, certainly you and I need prayer for everything, but especially so that the preaching of the word by others and by us will be effective in making spiritually dead people live. This is how uh, it's been with Christians throughout history. A great preacher that he was, it was Martin Luther's praying that impressed people who knew him. Uh, Martin Luther's colleague and friend, Philip Melanchthon, said this, once I happened to hear him, good God, how great a spirit, how great a faith was in his words. With such reverence did he ask, as if he felt he was speaking with God, with such hope and faith as with a father and a friend. That was the great Martin Luther. The prayers of the Scottish reformer John Knox were said by Queen Mary Stuart to terrify her more than all her enemies. And people did say Knox is praying was even more powerful than his preaching. And yet Knox defined prayer. I love his definition. It's my favorite definition of prayer. As an earnest and familiar talking with God. He wasn't haranguing God. It's an earnest and familiar talking with God. Talking with a friend. Talking with his father in heaven about what was on his heart. Knowing that, Knox had that motto. With God, one man is a majority. Man at prayer. Woman at prayer. Talking with God is a, in an earnest and familiar way. Such a person is, is a majority as far as the world is concerned. The great Victorian preacher, Sage Spurgeon, knew the importance of prayer, not least in relation to preaching. His prayer as he entered the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle here in London was, I believe in the Holy Ghost. It was, I believe in the Holy Ghost. When Spurgeon's younger protege, Archibald Brown, who was the pastor at East London Tabernacle, where I was, had the privilege of being the minister back in the 19th century, uh, the members said, well, pastor, you preach, and we will pray. That was the bargain. That was a deal. He said, that's the deal. You, pastor, preach, we will pray. And remembering that, Brown said, that constituted a noble band. 
Now, there's a church that prayed together with their pastor to see the gospel. And they had, you know, this is the 19th century, and I know it was very different times. And uh, it was it, evangelical Christianity was flourishing in many ways. But they, they basically, they had, they had um, 3,000 people attending on Sundays and uh, 40 people to 60 people a month being baptized and added to the church. It was amazing, the, the impact of the gospel. Now I could go on. There are, there are many examples of the necessity of prayer to advance the kingdom. But one more example, and that is John Gerandau, who is the minister of a mainly black church in Charleston, South Carolina in the 19th century. There he saw a significant revival. Uh, and, that, and like all revivals, began in prayer. Gerandau was called, called, in many ways, a Spurgeon of the South in the United States. And in praying for revival, Gerandau understood how Christians must address their prayers uh, to God and to his throne. Uh, he, he was preaching one Sunday, and in, it was the evening service, and he preached, and he felt something himself, but he didn't know, and he went to the back of the church to, as the pastor does at a church, and then realized something had happened to the congregation because no one got up to leave. And that began this, this revival, this, a season of prayer in the church that led to revival. And his biographer writes this, his view was that the Father had given to Jesus as the king and head of the church the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus, in his sovereign administration of the affairs of the church, bestowed him on whoever, whomsoever he pleased, and in whatever measure he pleased. Day after day, he therefore kept his prayer addressed directly to the mediatorial throne of the, for the Holy Spirit in mighty, reviving power. That's what Jeremy, he believes Jesus is on the throne of the Father. He'd been given the Spirit to pour out the Spirit. That was the special thing that happened. Jesus, in his, on his mediatorial throne between his two comings, was to pour out the Spirit on the church. So he kept the prayers addressed to Jesus uh, there for reviving power. And the revival came. I should, I've added that you're a Presbyterian church. This, his was a, he was a Presbyterian minister. So this is a Presbyterian church in Charleston, South Carolina. So it's a remarkable revival that crossed the racial divides and, and, and advanced the gospel. Uh, amazing power, and it was sweeping actually right through the east coast of the United States at that time. It happened the year before in, in Northern Ireland and in Scotland oh, and parts of England and uh, Wales as well. And if we're to see the Spirit come and make dead bones live, we must do, we must do nothing less. Addressing our prayers to them, Jesus, the exalted King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's crowned, we were singing at the beginning of the service, addressing our prayers to him to revive his church in his time, in his way. And practically, this means that every day we must pray for the Spirit to empower our personal witness so that through the Word, we, we each preach to spiritually dead people that they will come to life. For sure, we must pray for the conversion to specific people we know and love. But in doing so, we must consciously address the Lord Jesus on the Father's throne. We must pray that he would pour out the Spirit on each of us so that we preach, so, so what we preach will be used by him to bring life to the dead. And what we pray for ourselves, we personally, we pray also for the church as a whole. We're corporately Christians, not just individually Christians. And we need to pray to the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus to pour out his spirit on the church afresh, to empower her witness. Pray that people who are now dead in their trespasses and sins will be made alive as they are born again through the preaching of the word. And pray that this would not only happen occasionally, but regularly and in a big, big, big way. Think of all the issues we're facing in our culture. And we're all concerned of so many 
things, you know, the transgender agenda and so many other things that's about our culture. But the big thing our culture needs, we guess we can get engaged in the culture wars, but the big thing our culture needs is a mighty work of God in our generation to turn back the hearts of people to, to God and pray that God would send revival so that a vast army is resurrected in the valley of dry bones of our nation. And for that to happen, we must preach and get the gospel out to as many people as possible. We must also pray, for by prayer, the Spirit empowers the word we preach. But we need more than preaching, and we need more than prayer. That brings me to my third point, and that is, spiritually dead people can only live if there's power from God. Spiritually dead people can only live if there's power from God, verses 11 to 14. Now, in verses 11 to 14, God explains the significance of the vision Ezekiel uh, saw. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we're we're cut off uh, completely. The people felt utterly hopeless in their exile under the judgment of God. But through Ezekiel, God promises them spiritual resurrection and restoration to the land of their inheritance. Verse uh, 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your gates and your graves and raise you from your graves. Oh, oh, my people, and I will bring you out of the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. You see, this will happen because God is, will not only resurrect them, But he goes on to say, he will indwell them by his spirit, verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live. And I will will place you in your own land. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, much of what God says here repeats what he's already said in verses 4 to 10. In doing so, God reaffirms what he has promised to do in making the dead bones of Israel live by the the preaching of the word and prayer. But God is doing something more. He's also saying that the dry bones of Israel will only live by an exercise of his sovereign power. He's been saying that all along, but now God underlines that point. As the sovereign Lord, he will act in power. Note the eyes of the verse. I am going to open your grace. I will bring you back. I am the Lord. I open your grace. I will put my spirit in you. I will settle you in your land. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do it. In all God does, he is sovereign in exercising his power. Yes, he commands us to preach his word and to pray for his spirit, to empower it, so that spiritually dead people live. But just because we preach and pray, God is under no obligation to act and to do what we want him to do. We can't control God. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, the spirit is like the wind that blows wherever it pleases. And much as we must preach and pray to see the kingdom of Christ advance, we must never forget that. For suddenly we can begin to trust our preaching, however sound it is. And we can begin to trust our praying, however fervent it is, rather than God who uses them in his sovereignty. We can, you see, we can trust the form rather than God himself. That's a subtle danger, particularly for us who are evangelical Christians who really believe in preaching and prayer. We can begin to trust the form rather than God himself who works through the preaching, through the praying. 
We can trust who we are and what we do rather than God who in his sovereign grace uses us powerfully to advance the kingdom of his son. By all means, let there be faithful preaching and fervent praying. But we must trust God to, to exercise his sovereign power where and when and with whom he chooses. Yes, and would love God to do a great work in our time and our generation, but perhaps that's not his will. It may be for a future generation. We simply are called to sow the seed in our generation for the future generation to reap the, 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 the harvest. Well, if that's God's will, so be it. We'll be faithful. But we keep preaching, we keep praying, knowing that God will, in his time, act in his sovereign power. And when he does, the glory is his and not ours. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote when he was all too prone to trust uh, to the Corinthians who were all too prone to trust their, their gifts and their abilities and their cleverness. This is how he said, look, I, this is how I came to Corinth, he reminds them in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, brothers, did, uh, I did not come uh, proclaim, sorry, I'll start again. And, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, the Apostle Paul was one of the most gifted and learned men of his generation. But in bringing the gospel to Corinth, he simply preached the gospel, trusting God to work in his sovereign power. Uh, the same was true when he went to Thessalonica, when he, uh, he writes to the Thessalonians in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, because our gospel came to you, not in word, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Paul knew that he couldn't control God, but in his sovereignty, God could use him as he faithfully and prayerfully preached his word. And that continues to be true for us today as Christians. As with Paul, the content of our preaching of the gospel must be true, and we must communicate it as clearly as we can to people. But it's the Holy Spirit who empowers it as he wills so that people, when they hear it, are convinced of its truth. Now, like Ezekiel, we find ourselves today as Christians in a valley of dry bones, of very dry bones. Look at our culture, our secular culture, so spiritually dry. All around us are spiritually dead people, just as we once were. But God wants spiritually dead people to live. And he wants there to be a vast number of people in the promised land of the new creation. And he's ordained the preaching of his word and he's ordained prayer as the means by which this will happen. Let's then, as a church here at London City Presbyterian Church, if you're from another church in your church, whatever churches we are, and as individuals with the gifts and the opportunities and the circumstances the Lord gives each one of us, Preach the word and pray for the Spirit to make it effective for the salvation of men and women, boys and girls. The extent to which God will use us, we leave to him. But if, if we are faithful in preaching and in prayer, we can be sure that he in his time and in his way will be glorified 
by the salvation of sinners, by his sovereign power. Why? Because God has spoken, and he will do what he has purposed for his glory. And in the end, that is all we need to know. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are surrounded in our culture by a valley of dry bones, and you have to confess, we were all once dry bones ourselves. You made us spiritual alive if we're Christians. But Lord, in the valley of dry bones in our culture, we pray that evangelism would happen, that your spirit empowers, that we'd be preaching back by prayer, that in your sovereign power you use to bring sinners to Christ. You know the people in our hearts, in our families, in our friendship networks, in our places of work or study or wherever we might be. And Father, we pray that you would work. Use our halting words, our witness, our attempts to just help someone see that there's another way than the way they're going, the way of that leading ultimately to hell. Help us show them the way of life. Give us opportunity. Give us courage. Give us boldness. But Lord, we pray that you would take our words, halting, feeble as they are, power them by your spirit, and in your sovereign mercy and grace and power, uh, bring people to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Surprise us, Lord, by what you would do. Enlarge our expectations, Father. May we see that we really, uh, because we expect great things for, from you, attempt great things for you. So hear our prayers. We bring these things to you at the end of this Lord's Day. Amen.